a very personal question, but have you ever felt dead inside? Ever looked in the mirror and just felt empty or just felt dead inside? Now, as I said, that's a really personal question. You don't have to answer it, but I'll tell you this. Um, I'll, I'll answer it for you. Um, yeah, there's times I have in my life felt just dead inside. Um, and and it's, it's a weird thing because I can't necessarily go back in life and think, well, this was the circumstance or that was the circumstance or when it happened. I just know there's been times in life when, yeah, I felt dead in, inside. And um, I think that's just an interesting question to start with this morning. Um, there's an interesting dichotomy when you think about it, because we live in a world that is teeming with life, right? We live, there's animals all around us, there's people all around us. Um, we live in an ecosystem, you know, all kinds of plants, all kinds of trees, all kinds of living things all around us. And yet, amidst all of this life, there is an undercurrent of death. It just exists. And, and, it, and it's there in the sense that we know that there are, there are, there are flowers we plant and we know they're going to die. We, we know there are trees that are going to get, get old and need to be chopped down. We know that there are relationships that, that die sometimes. Sometimes our finances might seem a little dead. Um, all kinds of things. There's iconic brands in our history that have gone dead. Anybody ever hear of Montgomery Wards or Circuit City? I'm kind of dating myself there with that first one. But then there's things like Sears and Kmart and, and other iconic brand names and it's a kind of a sad thing when they seem to go dead. Likewise, we all have a career that someday will end. We have uh, eyesight that will go bad and memory that will fail us and eventually we'll come to our own uh, endful demise in life because there's this undercurrent of death that flows throughout life. And this undercurrent of death, it flows out of really the sin in the Garden of Eden, that first sin by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That is what brought the curse of death, and it flows through creation and has flowed through creation ever since they ate that first uh, forbidden piece of fruit. In a, a garden of abundance, teeming with life, they introduced death. And the reality is, because of that, sometimes in life, we feel dead inside. We might not even be dead, but we feel dead inside. That's the reality. Now, Jesus is the one that comes along. He's given the mission to come along because in the Garden of Eden, God promised one day he would send a Messiah to come and to break the curse of sin and to stop this undercurrent of death that was flowing throughout the world and throughout our lives. And he was given this mission. And so he comes 4,000 years after the promise. Jesus is born into the world. He grows up and he has come with this mission to break the curse of sin and stop the undercurrent of death. Now, the ironic thing is, the day that he's crucified, or that afternoon that he's crucified, it looks like his demise is our demise. It looks like he's been swept up in the same undercurrent of death that we are. It looks like his reality is our reality. And what hope does anybody have when Christ hangs on the cross there and gives up the ghost? That's the reality. But then we come to the Easter story, the unexpected story of Easter. An incredible, amazing story. I love some thoughts here by J.R. Tolkien. You might know him from the Lord of the Rings and some other uh, things he's written. Do, do you know what the word gospel means? Uh, euangelion. 
It means literally the joy news. J.R.R. Tolkien says there's a kind of story that brings us unbelievable joy. He says these stories always have a certain kernel to them. There's always some incredible hopeless situation and victory is snatched out of the jaws of defeat. But how? Always through, always through someone who comes in and whose weakness turns out to be a strength. Someone whose defeat turns out to be a victory. He says in those kinds of stories, that just seems to bring us joy. He calls them, he called them, eucatastrophes. Do you know what the word eucatastrophe means? And I think I have these words on the screen here. Uh, Euangelion is the joy news, but there's this word eucatastrophe. And you know what it means? It means the joyful catastrophe. It means the tragedy that turns out to be a triumph. It means the sacrifice that ends up in joy. There's a story in all of the stories, he believes, and um, he, he says there's a, there's a eucatastrophe of all the eucatastrophes, a story in all of the stories. He believes there's a bass string to the human heart, and those stories can kind of make it reverberate a little bit, but can't pluck it. Tolkien says the gospel story is the only story that will pluck that string so the whole heart never stops reverberating and vibrating with joy. The reason it will reverberate is this is the reality to which all of the other stories point. It happened. It really happened. There really is a hero who defeats the villain. There really is Jesus. The word gospel means the joy news. Joy, it's real. You have to have it. And some thoughts there wrapped up by J.R. Tolkien. Today, our big idea today, we're going to unpack this big idea, but there's that idea, Easter is the eucatastrophe of all eucatastrophes. It's the story of all stories, and that really is true. And here's the big idea today, it's simply this, Easter is when Jesus' story can become our story, when his life can become our life. Think about what his story is. It's a story of life over death, a story of victory over defeat and righteousness over sin and hope over despair and joy over sorrow and peace over fear. And that's the story of Jesus. And he is the one whose whose greatest weakness turned out to be his greatest strength, right? What was his greatest weakness? Well, his humility that put him on a cross, if you can call that a weakness. And yet that's what redeemed the whole world. And because he conquered, think about this, because he conquered our darkest realities and our greatest fears and our deepest pain, we can rise above anything in this world. We can rise above that undercurrent of death. We can live a life of future hope and eternal resurrection in Christ. We read the story earlier, and it's the story of Jesus. It's it's resurrection day. And it's later on in that day, towards evening, two men, Cleophas is one man and another man, and they're walking down this dusty road to Emmaus, and they have an encounter with Jesus, only they don't know it's Jesus. We're going to walk through that narrative today, and I want you to see four signs of life. Because Easter is, it's the story of life. It's the story that, 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 that deals with this undercurrent of death. It really does. The Bible tells us that everybody is born spiritually dead, bored, without any hope. And Christ comes to bring us life and to stop the undercurrent of death within us. So let's walk through this. And we are going to start today, four signs of life in this narrative. And we'll start here with the first couple of verses. Uh, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from
from recognizing him. Here's the first uh, sign of life. His heart is beating. His heart is beating. It really is beating. And this is more significant than it may sound. But it says that Jesus himself drew near. Jesus drew near in person. He drew near in flesh and in blood. Now, it would be easy at this point to say, well, of course his heart is beating, of course he's alive. But the reality is most of the people that day, most of his followers, they didn't think he was alive. Oh, they heard the stories, but they didn't think he was really alive. No one seemed to think that. So a couple things here. First, Jesus is more than a vision. Think about this. In in verses 22 through 24, these two men start to explain to Jesus, the women, and their experience. And it says this, moreover, some of the women, uh, some, uh, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, here's the only thing, and maybe I'm being nitpicky here. I don't think the women saw a vision of angels. I think they saw angels. I think they really saw real angels, not a vision of angels. And why is that important? Because what it does, it starts to put this idea out there, well, if they were a vision, maybe Jesus is just a vision. And so later on we see this, some of those who were with us went back to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So they they do not see Jesus. But going on here, look at this. Um, This is the next day. These two men go back home the next day and find the disciples and they're in this room with all of them together. And as they're there, Jesus appears. It says, as they were talking about these things, all of their experiences about the resurrection, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. See, there's this idea that, well, we're seeing Jesus, but it's not really Jesus. It's a vision of Jesus. It's his spirit, but... But no, the truth is, Jesus is physically alive. His heart is really beating. And Jesus goes on and says, hey, feel the scars in me. I'm physically here. He goes on, it's fascinating, at the end of this, he says, you have any food in the house? They said, we got some fish. He says, give me a piece of fish. He takes the meat, he devours the meat, the meat disappears. Jesus is physically in the room. He's consumed the meat. He's not a vision. He's not a spirit. Jesus is really alive. His heart is really beating. And that's really, I think, pretty important. At the same time, Jesus' resurrection, his resurrection is more than a story. It is more than simply a story. And there is this trend as well. Same same day, same chapter, Luke 24, earlier in the day, resurrection day, and the ladies go to the tomb That was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to the apostles to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So they heard the story, and they're like, yeah, that's a wild manufactured story. It's not true. Do you remember what happened after the resurrection, how the the Jewish religious leaders came, and they went and they got the Roman soldiers, and they paid them off to, to tell a lie that... They had come and stolen the body. They knew that wasn't true, but they had him tell this lie. And that lie, it says, is perpetuated unto this day. So it's it's really ironic because there are these Jewish religious leaders and the Roman soldiers, they know the body wasn't stolen, but they tell that story. And here are his followers who they don't believe he really resurrected. They think it's some wild story that he's 
resurrected from the grave or that he's not around and, and they don't understand what happened. It's, it's just something they can't quite comprehend. Paul talks about this though. This is fascinating. It's more than a story. And so here's what Paul tells us sometime later. There's 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And sometime in that 40 days, this takes place. Paul says, For I, for I receive what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Cephas is the guy on the road here, the dusty road to Emmaus, then the twelve, and uh, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of them are still living. And I've used this illustration before, but it's so phenomenal that if we were to start this morning and have everybody who witnessed Christ alive after the resurrection come up and take just 15 minutes and tell their story, we would be here until next Saturday at noon. 500 people saw Christ alive after he was supposedly crucified. And he went and he preached to those 500. He did. It's an amazing thing. See, Jesus is more than a vision and his resurrection is more than a story. In fact, how important is his bodily resurrection? Look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, same, same chapter there. And if Christ has not been raised, Paul says... Our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, Jesus' resurrection is not merely an option. Some people, you know, they like Jesus. They think he's a great teacher, had some good ideas, but I don't know. (laughs) Do I need him to save me? I don't think I need him to save me. Did he really resurrect from the grave? Well, I don't know about that. That's a little extreme. I don't, that, that Jesus is too extreme for me. He kind of blows my mind. And yet Paul says, truth is, if Jesus didn't resurrect from the grave, we might as well close the doors and shut down all the churches. Because the Christian faith is based on one basic premise, that Christ really did come out of that grave physically, and his heart is beating, and he defeated sin and death and hell It is not an option. You see, we didn't need a good teacher. We needed a risen Savior. We didn't need someone to come. And There's all kinds of great teachers throughout history, right? We didn't need need another good teacher. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes, hopefully sometimes, I'm a pretty good teacher on Sunday. You don't need more of me or the most famous, you don't need Billy Graham's. We need someone who could literally die come back to life and and stop this undercurrent of death raging through the world. And that is, my friends, what 500 people could testify to on that day. And how, how strongly did those 500 people believe what they saw? Enough that most of them were persecuted. We know that 11 of 12 disciples ended up martyrs for their faith. One of them ended up on some distant island. That's how much they believed in what they saw. And the question really is, who do you believe? Do you believe those who died for their beliefs or those who lied for their beliefs? That's really what it comes down to. Who do you believe? It's really not much more complicated than that. So the first sign of life is simply this. His heart is beating. Here's a second sign of life. His life is engaging. His life is engaging. Look, just a a few more verses here in the narrative, um, and maybe they're not on the screen. I'll read them here in verses 15 through 18. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. 
But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleophas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And so Jesus approaches these two men and says, So what are you talking about? And, and, and Cleophas is like, Really? I mean, really? You do not know what happened? How can you be the only one to not know what happened? Isn't that ironic? Because he knows what happened. He was there. But it's pretty fascinating. And so what, what strikes me is that he could have just come up to these guys and just revealed who he was and went on his way and said, hey, guys, it's me. I'm alive. And he could have gone on his way, but he doesn't do that. He engages with them. He walks with them. Three things, I think, to find here. He walked with them, conversed with them, and related with them. I think it's pretty fascinating. He engages them. And, and, he, and he listens to them. He, he lets them share their grief and their heart, spend some time with them. Pretty fascinating. Pretty fascinating. Um, you could say he went the extra mile or the extra seven miles with them all the way to Emmaus. And then when he gets there, they talk him into coming in for supper. Pretty fascinating. So he walked with, he conversed with, and he related with them. Take that last one related with them. Just think about this. The Bible says there was an earthquake when Jesus died, and so the ground shook, and, and there was this great earthquake. And, but there was an earthquake for all of his followers that, that shook their entire lives. Their lives were turned upside down. And after this, they really didn't know what to think, what to expect. They didn't know what was next. They didn't know where to turn, what to do. Excuse me. They, they, um, they, they had joy. They had lost joy to sorrow and peace to fear. Hope to despair and confidence gave way to doubt. I mean, their lives have been turned upside down, so he relates with them. Now, I want you to look at a verse we've looked at so many times, but I want you to think about it this morning in the, in the context of this. There it is. Oh, I must have had it out of place on the slide. Thank you, guys. Hebrews 4.14 tells us this. Since then, we have a great high priest, which is Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession or our beliefs, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the thing. Jesus spent about two years of his three years of ministry walking with the disciples. He went everywhere with them. And so he talked with them and related to them, conversed with them, and he related with them on a certain level. But I'm telling you that now that he has gone to the cross and come out of the grave, I'm telling you that he can relate with them on a much deeper level. That's what it tells us, that Christ went to the cross and suffered the things that we suffered so he can sympathize, so he can go to God the Father and say, boy, God, you don't know, not, Dad, you don't know what it's like for them down there. You do not know what they go through. You do not know what it's like to be tempted by the devil. You do not know what it's like to fear death. You do not know what it is. And he can go to the Father and explain all of those things 
to the Father, and he can relate with us. And so he relates with them. Really, it's amazing. He relates with them like never before. He can feel the heart of Thomas's doubt. He can feel the weight of Peter's guilt. He can feel the depth of Mary's sorrow, and he can feel the reality of the disciples' fear. He can all of that. And things he may not have related to before, he now knows exactly what it feels like. And, and what's so amazing is that many times it is our fear, and it is our guilt, and it is our doubt that might keep us from God. That might keep us from Christ. You know, it's like, uh, I shouldn't be afraid or I I shouldn't have this guilt or I shouldn't have these doubts and I have these things and so I tend to stay back and, and, and know those are the things, the times I need to run to the throne of grace and know that he will relate with me. He will have grace for me and mercy for me. He will give me compassionate understanding. It's an amazing thing. It really is an amazing thing. Just a beautiful thing. One of the things that really separates Yahweh, the one true God, the one that rose from the grave, the Trinity God, that's, that from every other false God in religion is because he is so personal and so conversational. I mean, you think of all the other supposed gods that exist, they're false gods, false religions, you think about them, and I'm telling you, there is no God like Yahweh. There is no God that is so personal. No God that will meet you on a dusty road to Emmaus and have a conversation with you. No God who will take on flesh and blood and become just like you. No God who would suffer the cross for you. No God who will listen to you and care for you deeply and personally and respond to you. False gods, you know what? False gods, they may want your money. They may want your worship. They may want your life. But you know what? They don't want you. They don't want you and your problems and your issues. They don't care about that. They just care about what you can bring to them. We have a God. He doesn't speak to us in an audible voice today, but He speaks to us through His Holy Spirit and through His Word, the Scriptures. He speaks to us and brings us comfort and encourage. And I'm convinced that most people that don't have a personal active relationship with Jesus Christ just don't know how personal He is, how much He really cares about what you're going through in your world. It's an amazing, an amazing an amazing thing. The key is, and this is a very cliche statement here, but Christianity is not a, a religion. It is a, it is a relationship with your creator and with your redeemer. And that's what sets that's Christianity apart from any other, other religion. It's not a religion. It is a person, a relationship with your creator, your redeemer, the one who made you and the one who went out of his way to die for you. Talk about going out of his way. He went from heaven to earth. He went from life to death to reach out to you. And he wants his story to be your story. He wants his life to be your life. He wants to stop the undercurrent of death that flows through your life. He wants to deal with those times when you feel dead inside. There was once a Muslim college student who came to believe in Jesus Christ. One of his friends was shocked and asked him, why did you become a follower of Jesus? Here was his response. It's simple, really. Imagine that you're walking down a road and you come to a fork in the road and there are two people there to follow as your guide along the way. One of them is dead and one of them is alive. Which one would you follow? One of the great appeals of Christianity is that Jesus, its founder, is not dead but alive. And so even after the hype from Easter Sunday fades into the grind of Monday, Jesus is still alive. And because he lives, people should seek him, worship him, and obey him. His heart is beating. His life is engaging. And their eyes are opening. We're talking about a sign of life in this narrative. Their eyes are opening. 
And this is a common kind of narrative you see in, in, in resurrection morning throughout these, these few days here after the resurrection that gradually the eyes of the disciples and his followers are starting to open. They're starting to maybe, well, what? What am I really seeing here? What's really going on here? Now, there's a fascinating thing, though, that, that struck me this week. It's found in verse 16 because it says, um, but, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And I think that's a fascinating thing to stop and ask. Why? It's almost like they weren't allowed to see him. It's almost like they weren't allowed to recognize him. And why? Why wouldn't God want them to see him? I think uh, on some level, they couldn't see Jesus until they could first see God. Think about that. They couldn't see Jesus until they could first see God. Let me explain what I mean by that. There are four ways in the text here that we, need to, we all need to see Jesus. Four ways that they needed to see Jesus, and I think it's why God purposely kept them from maybe seeing Jesus until they could maybe begin to process these four ways. And we all need to process these four ways. For instance, we need to see Jesus through the Old Testament. Verses 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And we see this other places in this post-resurrection narrative where he starts to break down the Old Testament and say, hey, this is where I fit in. For instance, Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stick, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Written 700 years before the crucifixion of Christ. And yet this is the kind of thing that Jesus would go back to and say, remember these words by Isaiah. Yeah, that just happened. That was the cross. That was me. See, they, they had to, before they could see Jesus, they had to first see God. And they had to know that Jesus Christ was the God of the old testament he was foreshadowed in the old testament they had to see how moses pictured jesus as a great deliverer uh, david pictured jesus as a great giant killer and isaiah pictured jesus as the final and ultimate passover lamb and then they had to see jesus as god they, they did kind of like i said they couldn't see Jesus until they could first see God. And I'm thinking of one illustration in particular in the Old Testament again. Isaiah one time has this incredible vision. And, and, and he sees God. He sees actually, he sees Christ sitting on the throne, ruling over the temple. And, it, and he's hovering actually above the earth because the temple's on the earth. And so he's ruling over the earth, sitting on his throne. Uh, the, the Bible says the earth is like his footstool picture that okay he's got his feet resting on the earth as a footstool the hem of his robe just the very bottom hem of his robe is filling up the entire temple and he's sitting there and there's these 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 angelic seraphim with six wings and they're hovering over him and they're saying holy 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 is the lord god almighty and this is an amazing vision it in fact actually terrifies isaiah it's such a vision isaiah is simply terrified by it and the reality is um, when the disciples, when these two men, these two followers on this road to Emmaus see Jesus, is that what they see? You think that's what they see? Do you think they see what Isaiah saw? Because that's who's on the road to Emmaus there. That very 
same God is on that road to Emmaus. In fact, I think it's right here. Here is what they see. Listen to this. Verse 19 and 20. And they said to him, Jesus, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deeds, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. When they think of Jesus, who do they see? They see a great prophet, a good teacher, a a, a pretty awesome rabbi. And they see someone who just succumbed to death and was humiliated and crucified by all the religious establishment. They don't see what Isaiah saw. And to some degree, until you you begin to draw the connection that, hey, this person right here is the same person that Isaiah saw in that vision. We don't really have a clear indication of who Jesus is. They had to see Jesus at the same time through the gospel. They had to see him through the gospel. Fascinating thing takes place. So they, they, they get to kind of the end of their journey, the seven miles, and Jesus is going to leave them. And they say, no, come on, it's late. Come stay with us. And he goes in to have dinner with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him and he vanished from their sight and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And there was just something about the way he broke the bread and gave thanks and maybe he had done that in their presence before. Maybe they were there for the last supper, I don't know. You get that kind of imagery that something about how he did that, it just clicked. But the reality is they needed to see him through the gospel. And the very next day when Jesus, again, meets up with all of his followers there, the next day, um, uh, basically, uh, then he, Jesus, said to them, this is the next day, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he goes on, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And he goes and he basically says, I'm God, but you have to see me through the cross and you have to see the cross through me. You have to understand me through the empty tomb, through the gospel. And until you understand me through the gospel, you do not really know who Jesus is because he is not just a good teacher. We don't need more good teachers. We need a risen Savior and there's only one that could be a risen Savior. That is the reality. That's the reality. And Easter is when Jesus wants his story to become our story, his life to become our life and that is what takes place when we respond to the gospel. So his heart is beating, his life is engaging, their eyes are opening, and one last sign of life in this story here. And you go to Luke 24, and we didn't read this, but this is at the very end of Luke 24. Uh, This, uh, oh, I missed this. They also had to see Jesus by faith. Sorry about that. There's There's an element of needing to see Jesus by faith. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And so when they went to the tomb, they couldn't see Jesus. The implication is he wasn't there. They couldn't see him because he wasn't there. But the reality is, is that really we need to see Jesus by faith. In fact, I was thinking about this. So how many people, see if you can get the answer to this, how many people witnessed the resurrection of Christ? 
How many people witnessed the resurrection of Christ? Do you remember? Yeah, if you said zero, you're right. Nobody did. Nobody witnessed the resurrection of Christ. No one saw him come out of the grave. I don't know what that looked like. Not one person did. But 500 people saw him alive after his resurrection and said, that's Jesus. I know that's Jesus. And so all 500 of them, and in some sense, they're operating on faith because they saw the empty tomb and believed, had to believe at some point that yes, Christ did resurrect from the grave. If we're going to see if we're going to see Jesus, we have to see him with those eyes of faith. So his heart is beating, his life is engaging, their eyes are opening, and then this one last sign of life in the text here, and it's down at the very end in verses 48 and 49, it tells us that his spirit was moving. His spirit was moving. And I don't know if I have it on the screen, I don't. Um, you, are my wit- you are witnesses, it says, of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are, you are clothed with power from on high. Basically, Jesus said that I'm going to leave, but I'm not going to leave you alone. And when I leave, I'm going to send my spirit. You read the book of Acts, you see when he sends the Holy Spirit to them. It's pretty fascinating. And what we even see here, just, a, just, just kind of a, he gives them a taste of the Holy Spirit. It's a pretty fascinating thing. Um, down there in, in John 20, Jesus said to them again, this is right before uh, he's getting ready to leave, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And he just kind of gives them a, just a taste of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who was his life, the Holy Spirit who enabled him to minister for three years on the earth. The Holy Spirit that enabled him to hang on that cross. Remember he said the Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. In his flesh he couldn't have done it, but in the Holy Spirit he hung on that cross and gave his life up for you and me. It's an amazing thing. And before he leaves, he just breathes on them and says, this is what the Holy Spirit is like. And the Holy Spirit will come to you. The Holy Spirit will come to you. That is the promise that he made them. The Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. And I will send the Holy Spirit. It tells us in the book of John, I will send the Holy Spirit to come and to empower you and to empower you to go out and tell everybody else that Jesus' story can be their story. To go out into an under, a world with an undercurrent of death to go out and bring hope and life in a world filled with this undercurrent of death. It's exactly what he does. It's an amazing thing. His story can be our story. He's telling that to you and I today. It's exactly what he's telling us. That we can have life over death and victory over defeat and righteousness over sin and hope over despair, joy over sorrow, peace over fear. His story can be our story. In a world filled with an undercurrent of death, we can know the life of Christ. It's fascinating because about eight, it traveled forward about eight years after the resurrection, ascension of Christ. Probably eight years. Some have it as less. But there's a man named the Apostle Paul. You maybe heard of him. Wrote most of the New Testament. Paul is walking down another dusty road, a road that travels to Damascus. And Paul, he did not believe in Jesus. In fact, he did everything he could to persecute those who believed in Jesus. He was a Jesus hater. Now, the thing about Paul is that he really loved God and he really 
was committed to his Jewish faith. That's the truth. He just didn't believe Jesus Christ really had resurrected from the grave. And so what God does, what Jesus does as he's walking on that dusty road to Damascus that day is he stops him cold in his tracks and gives him a vision. And he says, Paul, look at the scars in my hands. You see, I am the Messiah. I am the risen one. I really did come out of that grave. I really am who all those Jesus Christ followers say I am. I really am. And so Paul, if you know the story, sells himself out to the gospel like no one ever has. No one has ever been more committed to the gospel than than Paul was. And in fact, the reality is Paul has a couple of other revelations, distinct revelations where God comes down and says, Paul, I want to expand the gospel for you. I want you to understand when I died on the cross and rose out of the grave, I want you to understand exactly what that meant. And he expands on the gospel for him. And then Paul expands on the gospel for us. And so we can go to Paul's writings and learn all about the good news. The you, you, uh, you Angeline, we we're talking about the joy news. We can go and we can read all about that, about the eucatastrophe and what it really meant to our lives today. Let me tell you two things Paul tells us that I think is, is really powerful that we need to know before we leave today about the gospel and about the fact that his spirit is moving. It, it, it's simply this. Um, Paul expands the reality of the gospel and tells us that when we are saved upon our salvation, we become a new creation and his life becomes our life. Because of Easter... His life can become our life. And you'll find this several times in Paul's writing where Paul will literally say, Christ is your life. He will tell that. But for instance, his life can be our life. 2 Corinthians 5, great passage. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Your old life that was consumed with death, that was trapped in that undercurrent of death, you were spiritually dead. The reality is, because of the gospel, because of the eucatastrophe of, 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 of Easter, because of this, this great tragedy out of triumph. You can, you can be a brand new person and you can be full of life. Another powerful passage, Galatians 2.20, I, am, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but what? It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow. That's the, that's the good news. And, and the, the reality is, the signs of life of the gospel is that his spirit is still moving and that God will put his spirit into you. Christ will give you his life. He will make you alive. Here's the second thing that Paul tells us. How many are aware, and you could almost make the case there's three but I'll say there's two Easter's today. Did you know there's two Easter's? And Paul tells us there are two Easter's and we may not think about it that way. The first Easter is real simple. The first Easter, we're celebrating this Easter today. It is the day that Jesus' heart started beating again. That's the Easter. What a great day, right? And we love to come out and celebrate that because of how it has so transformed our lives and transformed the world. So Easter number one is the day that the heart of Jesus started beating again. You know what the second Easter is? And remember I told you earlier that God is a very personal, conversational God. It's, a, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, it really is. Here's the second Easter. And, and, and I hopefully, 
And, and I'm going to ask you today, have you celebrated this Easter? This is the Easter. You've got to know if you've celebrated it. it. This is day number two, Easter number two. It's the day that Jesus' heart started beating in us. Real simple question for you today before you walk out those doors. Real simple question. And it's something we all answer personally with God. Is Christ my life? It's that simple. Is his story my story? Is his life my life? Is his heart beating in me? We're not talking about being religious and going to church and being a good person, being a good moral person and being a good parent and and being a good friend and reading your Bible. I'm talking about have you trusted Christ to be your life? There's a reason Christ went to the cross and died. There's a reason he did that. Only he could defeat sin and stop the undercurrent of death. And that undercurrent of death is going to sweep a lot of people in this world away someday if they have not put their faith and trust in Christ. The Bible says that we are spiritually dead because of sin. And only Christ can make us alive. So here's three responses today. This morning, I want Christ's life to be my life. I want His story to be mine. And if you've never ever made that decision today is the decision let me show you how simple it is because it's not complicated it really is not complicated to know christ here's the gospel i believe that jesus christ is god and that he took my sins to the cross and he took my place on the cross dying for me i believe he rose again on the third day defeating death and today i am trusting him to save me and to bring me life i humbly receive christ as my Savior. And you notice in there, there is not an ounce of work. I just believe. I just believe and receive. I want your life. If you have never done that, as we close in prayer here in just a second, I'm going to challenge you to say yes to Christ in your heart, to say yes. I believe you went to the cross and died for me, for my sins, died in my place. And I believe only you can save me from my sin and only you can stop the undercurrent of death in my life. And the reality is we all are going to feel dead at at, at times in life we are. But you know what's worse than feeling dead in life? You You know what's worse than feeling sometimes looking in the mirror and feeling dead inside? You know what's worse than that? It's when you are dead inside. It's when it's not a feeling, when it's your reality because you were born into sin. That's where, I mean, sometimes we're all going to feel dead inside. But it's really bad when that is your reality. What about this morning's message resonated the most with you? Where did God speak to you the most this morning? And finally, what next step can I take this morning so that more of Christ's story is mine and so that more of Christ's life is evident in me? Think about what I said earlier. That your greatest weakness was your greatest strength. It was your humility. It was your humility that allowed you to be nailed to that cross. Right now, I want the spirit of your humility to sweep through this room. I do not want one person, Lord, to be too proud to admit that they need you to be their life. The biggest obstacle between us and you, it's just our pride. It's just saying, I can do it on my own. I don't really need you to be my savior. And the reality is, we do. And I, I have, I'm not ashamed to say, I don't know where I'd be today if I didn't have you in my life. 
And I know there are countless people in this room that would say the same thing. And so I just pray that everyone here can walk out those doors. I just pray everyone, to, I don't know, but I pray everyone can walk out those doors and, and know that you are their life. And so as we pray, if there's just one person in the room, Lord, right now in your heart, it's as simple as saying, yes, today I'm going to believe and I'm going to receive. I understand the gospel. I'm believing and I am receiving. And Christ will come in. His story can be your story. His life can be your life. Don't let your pride keep you away from him. And Lord, I pray for the, just everyone else in this room. Help us, Lord, every day to live so that your story can be more evident in our life. That more people can see your life in me. I just pray for that reality. Thank you so much for the beautiful eucatastrophe that Easter is, the, the triumph that comes out of trial, the joy that comes out of sorrow, the joy that comes out of your incredible sacrifice. Thank you for that reality. Walk with us today. Bless our day. Thank you so much for all that's taken place here. We give you all the honor and all the glory and all the praise. And everyone said, amen. All right.